We are in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. This morning, hear the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. This is God's word. A statement. Pray for me. I was 10 minutes into the sermon in the last hour and thought, I have no idea that these people even hear what I'm saying. I, I was in a fog. I've been with grandkids for a week and a half. We, it took us two days to get to where we were going because of snow. We were delayed two days. And we have these beautiful grandchildren, three of them all under the age of four. And they get up at 515. And they don't stop. And, you know, when you're a grandparent, you realize that, that, that really parenting is a young person's sport. So I, my appreciation for parents of young children just grows every time I'm with them. We brought them back with us. And they're going to be with us through the 17th of December. And my son is flying in at 4.15 on the 17th to get them. Please pray that he'll be on time. Uh, so, that, so, I, so if I'm in a – just pray that I'll communicate this because it, it's uh, – I'm, I'm tired. I'm just tired. You know, you just stay tired when you're with young kids. You just, you just are tired. You know what I mean? You're just tired. And so I, I went to bed at halftime last night, but I still keyed up from that nail biter of a football game between Clemson and Virginia. So I, I couldn't fall asleep. Anyway, you, enough of that. The text starts off with this. Four. Christ also suffered, which goes back to the previous paragraph where it talks about, Peter says, as we heard last week from Matt, but, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. There's a, there's a path, a glorious path when we live out the reality of Christ and we suffer for it. That's what it says. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor to be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. And then it says, for Christ also suffered. In other words, you read this, and let me just say the obvious. The obvious is this. We are to be like Christ. That's the obvious. In, in chapter 2, it says this, verse 21, that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We're to be like Christ. Uh, Romans 8, we love Romans 8. When we study the Bible, we've been a Christian very long. It's the, the unbroken chain of God's redemptive power in our lives. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, verse 28 says. And we call it according to his purpose. And it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So you see, in other words, 
God's work in our lives is to conform us to be like Jesus. Now, what that means is he takes the uniqueness of your personality and he rounds off the rough edges. And he, if, you, if you are by nature this way, you're not going to become a totally different person. But he's going to take the uniqueness of who you are and he's going to produce his life in you and through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like? Here, here let me give you two composites of the life of Christ. Galatians 5. Verse 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. We're to be growing in those attitudes and attributes. 2 Peter 1, Peter says he's giving you these promises so that you may participate in the divine nature. Be like Jesus. What is that? Add to your faith goodness or energy. Either, either, translation, either way. Add to your faith goodness or energy. And to your goodness and energy, add, add knowledge and, and self-control and, and patience or steadfastness and godliness and brotherly kindness and, and love. So, so what I'm saying is you, you look at those things. I look at those things once a month. I, I, at the beginning of the month, I'll say, what attitude does the Lord want to work in my life from one of these composites? This month is kindness for me. I'm just praying, God, make me a kind person. But he wants us to be like Jesus. For, that's what it says here. For, for, for Christ also suffered. And then he talks about the uniqueness of what Christ did. And I... One commentator says about this, this is an incredibly brief but glorious statement of the gospel. And I agree. I think it's a glorious statement of the gospel. For Christ has also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Suffered once for sins. It was done. The cross fulfilled all the Old Testament promises once and for all. This glorious concept of once, once and for all. In Hebrews chapter 9, listen to this. But Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is, is appointed for man to die once and after that to come judgment, so Christ having offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him once. And so when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished once and for all. It's done. The curtain that separated the temple from the Holy of Holies torn from top to bottom. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. And when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a beautiful verse. Perfected those who are progressively being changed. Behold the glory of once for sins. And he says this, the just for the unjust or the righteous for the unrighteous. Um, On the West Coast recently, went to library hour at the local library. I was tired. And was sitting there. People started coming in. A little girl came in, pink boots, pink leggings, pink little skirt, pink. I mean, she was, she was dressed to the nines. Pink, not five years old. Now she's five years old. Pink shirt, um, cute. And, and this is what her shirt said. I'm not perfect. I'm, 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 I'm not just perfect. I'm fabulous. You know, I'm not just perfect. I'm fabulous. And I, I laughed. And then I thought, if she really believes that when she's 25, she's going to be one tough woman to be around. Or 35 or 45 or 55. I mean, and, and I thought, that's kind of the message of the world. You're, you're not just perfect, man. You are on top of the world. In fact, if people just knew you better, they would love you more. The reason people don't like you sometimes is because they just don't, they're just not that smart. If you bring that to the table intellectually, you will never get the gospel. Jesus died for sinners who missed the mark repeatedly. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the sin of us all. If you don't understand sin, the need for a Savior, you don't get it. Now, this is a double-edged sword here. All people made in the image of God. Therefore, everyone deserves respect and Christian love because they're made in the image of God. People, even jihadists and people that curse the name of God can express beauty and can appreciate justice and experience community to a degree. But the other side of the scale is we're dead in our sins. Our throat, the Bible says, is an open grave. No one really seeks after God unless God awakens their heart. So if you don't get it, the just for the unjust, you don't get it. You don't get the gospel. One of my favorite illustrations I use this frequently is a guy named Alexander Wythe, a Scotsman who preached in the 1800s. And after a sermon one day, the woman came to him and said, that's a wonderful sermon. You're a wonderful man. Thank you for all you do. You're fantastic. You're wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And he said, madam, if you could see into my heart, you would spit in my face. I said, Amen. I was reading Psalm 38 recently, and the psalmist in Psalm 38 is bemoaning his sin and that his sin has led him to the precipice of incredible, mind-boggling despair. And he says, for example, in verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh, there's no health in my bones because of my sin. Sometimes the psalmist, people are doing it to him. In this case, like in Psalm 51 and Psalm 6, he's done it. Verse 8, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. 
O Lord, all my longings are before you. My sign is not hidden from you. So he groans, he longs, he sighs. And do you ever experience this? You should. You should. We all deal with sin. You go to the, the trioka of 1 John, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the lies and, and the pride of life. That's enough. The self-centeredness, the me-ism that's endemic to us, to our culture, is there. The short fuse and the long memory is there. It says, my heart throbs and my strength fails me and the light of my eyes has gone out and my friends and my companions stay aloof from my plague and my nearness kin of kin stand afar off. I mean, this guy is really going through it. But then in verse 15, the, the, the sun comes, shines in. He says, but for you, O Jehovah, I wait. And he saw dimly. The psalmist saw dimly. We see technicolor, the beauty of Jesus. The just dying for the unjust. Next statement, that he might bring us to God because he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ brings us to God. He's the mediator between a holy, holy, holy God and sinful man. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's God. I mean, He's the fulfillment of all the promises. New City Catechism in the Worship Guide, question 25, does Christ's death mean that all of our sins can be forgiven? Answer, yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin, God graciously imputes or gives or puts on God graciously imputes Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own and will remember our sins no more. Do you hear that? Remember your sins no more. That is the gospel. You know, the devil jumps on you and says, you did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. Your worst enemy says, you did this and you did that. And you're thinking inside, if you really knew the truth, I did this and that and this and this and this and this and that. But you go to the, to the Lord, and because of the reality of Christ and the blood atonement, you're forgiven, and your sins are remembered no more. They're gone. It, it, it's, it's glorious. It's glorious. Behold the glory of the gospel. That's what Peter's getting out here. Behold the mediator, the Lamb of God, the substitute. Do you know that hope? Listen, there's a difference between reading it and comprehending part of it and really getting it here in your gut. Do you just break out in song occasionally saying, praise the Lord, praise God. When somebody, the devil accuses you or somebody, you say, thank you that that's covered by the blood of the Lord. And then he goes on, verse 19. New section, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is just eight persons, were brought safely through the water, eight persons being Noah's family. So we come to this text. 
this little passage. What does it mean? Well, Martin Luther, who wrote many commentaries, he was the guy who started the Reformation, died in 1546. When he came to this passage, this is what Luther said. He says, this is a wonderful text. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, cannot be found in the New Testament. So that I do not know what in the world Peter's talking about. <laughs> That's what Luther said. So we're going to jump in. We're going to jump in it, and I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Because I, th I think, if, I think if I'm right, which is the majority opinion the last hundred years, if I think if I'm right, it is a glorious statement. So. Let me, let me give you just four snapshots of four different views. The first view is this. Some people have said throughout church history that Christ went to hell and preached to damned souls between his death and his resurrection. That's one view. Augustine, one of my heroes who died in 430, said this. This passage means that Christ preached through Noah. It's like God inspired the apostles to write the scriptures, Old New Testament. That he said that's God spoke through Noah. 16th century uh, Roman Catholic cardinal named Bilimar said that this obviously is referring to limbo. Limbo is the place where it's a halfway house between heaven and hell and so Christ went to limbo and preached that. We don't, we don't believe that. We don't believe in limbo. We don't believe that happened. So here's what I think it means in the majority opinion, and I, I, think it, I think it's really great if you can get hold of it. The resurrected Christ, as he was ascending to heaven, proclaimed to imprisoned spirits that his victory over death and Satan at the cross was complete. The resurrected Christ proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits that his victory over death and Satan was complete. Now let me tell you, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Let's listen. You've got to realize that we live in a supernatural place, that there are angels and demons and, and they're there. And we are just so conditioned to not think that way that it's hard for us to get over it. But we, we, they're there. There are hierarchies of demons and angels in there. Anyway, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, so what he's saying is that, Peter's saying is that there was a revolt and fallen angels bedeviled people on the earth. Genesis 6, read Genesis 6, the Nephilim, I think. And God took them and he put them in a holding cell until the final judgment. So these fallen angels who aren't that smart, but who are very observant, are in the holding cell. The book of Jude, the next last book of the Bible, says this in Jude verse 6. And, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, 
but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. In chains, gloomy darkness, in a holding cell until the day of, of judgment. So, so here's, here's what I think this means. These fallen angels who are not that smart but who are very observant, they're sitting there and they're holding cell. And they have this ongoing dialogue. And they say, do you really believe that the living God, the one who's judged us, will fulfill the first promise in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, where it says to the devil, the serpent, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Do you really believe that's going to happen? So I don't know. So they're observing. Time goes by. They see the sacrificial system. And they say, do you really believe, according to the Old Testament book Micah, do you really believe that this eternal God, who has no beginning and who has no end, in the fullness of time, is going to be supernaturally birthed in a backwoods little town named Bethlehem? Because Micah 5, verse 2 says that. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Do you really believe that's going to happen? Guess what? It happened. Do, do, do you really believe, they would say, do you really believe that this God in the flesh is going to be able to withstand the temptations of our father, the devil, because after 40 days of fasting, our father, the devil, came to him and said, I'll give you all the bread you want, I'll, I'll give you all the notoriety you want, I'll protect you. I'll give you all the kingdoms you want if you just worship me. Do you really believe he's going to be able to withstand the overtures of our father, the devil? Guess what? He did. Do you really believe this eternal God is going to allow himself to be rejected by mere mortals, to be taunted, to be taken to the Bravo Hill so they could stone him, even though he walked by through them. Do you really believe he's going to subject himself to this type of deprivation, abandonment, and rejection? Guess what? He did. Do you really believe that this eternal God would go to a garden on the night of his betrayal and he would be so overcome with emotional grief and pain that he would sweat drops of blood as he cried out to his father, if possible, may this cup pass from me because Christ was going to be a sin bearer and be separated existentially, emotionally from the love of the father because he was the lamb of God on the cross for our sins. Do you really believe he will do that? Guess what? He did. Do you really believe he's going to allow himself to be beaten and slapped and taunted and cursed by a group of soldiers? 
Do you think he'll let them put a crown of thorns on his brow and push it down? And put a soiled robe around him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. He did. They said to one another, don't you realize that he could do that? And call down 72,000 angels. Jesus said that. 72,000 angels. At that time, the largest known army in the history of the world, one single army, was a 50,000-man army by a guy named Pompey. This is 72,000 angels. But he didn't do it. Do you really believe he's going to allow himself to be nailed to a cross with a spear thrust in his side, with with, uh, army troops casting lots over his robes, with people cursing and mocking him and belittling him? Guess what? He did. And do you believe and understand that he was resurrected on that first Sunday. And when he was resurrected and he ascended, he was saying to the fallen angels, you are forever condemned. It's done. It's done. Now see, when you get hold of that, and you see the majesty and the glory and the goodness of Christ, you go, wow. There's this little book called The Line of the Witch in the Word, by a guy named C.S. Lewis. I love it. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And it goes something like this. There's a great lion named Aslan who rules Narnia. And there's a white witch representing the devil, Aslan representing Christ. And there are four children from England that go into this mystical kingdom through a wardrobe. And the youngest child is a guy named Edmund. And he falls under the, the sway of the wicked witch. And he belongs to her. And she says to Aslan, you know the ancient laws that the only way this little boy will ever be released from the curse is if you die for him. And in the book, the great line, Aslan goes to the stone table in exchange for Edmund. And as he gets to the stone table, it says this, that that, that, that the, the witch shrieked, the fool, the fool, he has come, bind him fast. I think that's what happened at the cross. I think the demon said, the fool, the fool, he's dying for a reprobate unlovable group of people called us. But they didn't realize what we know. The rest of the story is he rose victorious over death. And he's the reigning Christ. And as he ascended, he said, it's done. It is done. They are mine. They belong to me. And that is the glory of this passage. So I want to talk about the reach of this passage. So I, I read this and I go back to the, this little catechism. Question 26 says, what else does Christ's death redeem? Answer, Christ's death is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of the fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good. There's a children's version of this, and it just says this. What does the death of Christ mean? It means that every part of fallen creation belongs to him. <laughs> every part. So, so I, I read this, and I look on down the text, and it says in verse 22, it says, 
uh, he's gone to heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, here's, here's what I want, to, I want to say to you and I want to preach to, to myself. Uh, that, that Jesus, eternal God, the Lion of Judah, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, died on the cross for our sins. There's no hymn that says... He died on the cross to save us from wrath and make us pure. And so when I think about it, it says here that, that, that everything is subject to Jesus. That means he came to make us new people, to change us, to work in our lives because he's worthy. Charles Spurgeon said this. He, he has a, Spurgeon died in 1898. He wrote a little Daily devotion called Morning and Evening. This is what he says. I'm just going to read part of it. It's in the worship guide. Even as we are securely, we may look to Christ for victories. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We shall cast down the powers of darkness which are in the world by our faith and zeal and holiness. And we shall win sinners to Jesus. We shall overturn false systems. And we shall convert nations, for God is with us, and none shall stand before us. This evening, he says, let, let the Christian warrior chant the warrior song and prepare for tomorrow's fight. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And I just say to us, that as, as you go forward in faith, as you walk further into the light, what is it that the Lord is kind of pushing and prodding you to do? So for some of us, it's just to get outside of ourselves. It means to just love people. Others here are, are, are involved in things. You know, what you're doing. you know what's wrong. You say, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because you have everything under your feet, break this in my life in the name of Jesus. So, so uh, the reach of the gospel is to change us, to push us, to prod us. And I... What is the Lord wanting to do in, in your life? Last, just afternoon, the concert was closed with this incredible song, Is He Worthy? Should be a question mark. By a guy named Andrew Peterson. I mean, when good music intersects with good theology, it is sweet. I mean, it is just like... That's why I love Elvis so much. That was the joke, okay? I'm glad you laughed. If you hadn't laughed, I thought, you guys really aren't with it. Anyway, but let me just read this, let me just read this to you. Just, just read part of this to you. It starts off with, do you feel the world is broken? And we say, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Yeah, we do, don't you? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. See, John 1.5 says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness was, was not able to overcome it. The light shines. It is all creation groaning. It is. It is a new creation coming. It is. It is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst. It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? You better believe it. I mean, no, it is. I mean, I'm saying you better believe it. Then you get to the chorus. 
Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. And of course, it refers to Revelation 5 where there's a scroll that represents the blessings of God that he wants to pour out on his people. And it says in verse 2, I saw among a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. And, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then later he breaks out on this. He says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. He's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy to, 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 to change us. And so, where's God prodding you? We have church, uh, something called the Lottie Moon World Christmas Offering. And you have, for years, been very gracious in your support of it. There are about 4,000 Southern Baptist missionaries all over the world. We have, we're in vital partnership with people in places like India and Bangladesh and Nepal and Morocco and Tunisia and Jordan, all, all over the world. And so we take up an offering at Christmas. It goes to support missionaries, support their ministries, so that men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will come to faith in Jesus. No one will come to faith unless somebody goes and takes the gospel to them. They, they don't. I mean, I, I, it doesn't float down from the sky. It, Romans 10 says with great clarity, how shall they hear unless someone is sent into our neighborhoods, into the barracks, into the campuses, to the nations. We're sent out. Jesus says, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. See? Well, part of our privilege in a land of great economic opportunity and privilege is to share with those who are going out. So I'm going to ask every worshiper of Jesus who comes here and claims this is their place of worship to give to the Lighting and Christmas offering. Everyone. I mean, if you're a student, we have a lot of students. Go without Starbucks for two weeks and give 10 bucks. Um, I mean, everybody can give. If you're an adult out of school, as a baseline, I'm going to ask the adults in your home out of school, that would be if you're married, you and your wife, you and your husband, to give at least 250 bucks each to this so that people can go, so that people can stay on the field and speak the gospel and live it out. That, that, that's part of who we are. That's, that's, that's who we are. Because faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the Word of God. It's just very simple. There's no way to be saved except through the work of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. So we send people out to open the Bible and to speak the message, to live it, and to love people. So that's, that's what we should be doing. So um, everybody, last year I think about 40% gave. Now, that's not good. I mean, everybody here who knows Jesus, if you're, if, if you're not a Christ follower and you're here to, to just hear and think, and man, we don't expect that from you. We want you to say, next year, you can give a lot. But right now, just listen, take it in, get saved by the grace of God. So, so that's who we are. That's what we should be doing. See, part of God's working in us is to get us outside of ourselves. Cut back on your gift giving so you can give. Cash in those tickets to the national championship game. You can watch it on TV. You know, it's a better seat anyway. Everybody can give. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the day and thank you for the beauty of an obscure passage. Thank you for a clear statement of the gospel and then a, a statement of a murky obscurity, but help us to really grab hold of the fact that it's finished. It's done. And now we're commissioned to go out and tell people Jesus has come and he's lived a perfect life and he's died on the cross for our sins as a sin bearer. Um, that's just who we are. That's what we do. And I pray that there'll be people continue to raise up in this church, who will go into various fields of ministry, whether it's to reach unreached people groups or to live it out in the marketplace or in the neighborhoods, who are burdened with gladness to communicate Jesus to those around them. I pray for the three that we pray for as Easter approaches in April, that you'd use us just to communicate Christ to them and to love, to love them. Um, Thank you that we can love because you first loved us. We can love you because you first loved us. We can love other people because you've changed us. So teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.